Greetings, Amigops, and as Kyle likes to say, top teners everywhere. Today, as every day, Kyle and I are going to be discussing a top 10 topic. Now, this week, I do know the topic. Kyle will give you a little more background on the topic after I kick it to him, but we're going to be discussing this topic. We're going to be debating it vigorously, and then by the end of the episode, Kyle and I will have a definitive top 10. All right, it's okay, dog. What are we talking about today? Okay, Mike, as listeners have probably picked up on by now, since we've been mentioning it every now and again, we have both been in the throes of a Harry Potter reread, mm-hmm. and it's very much on our minds. At the time of this recording, the second trailer for Fantastic Beast dropped just a couple of days ago, so that's on our minds, and we've been discussing for a while needing to do some Harry Potter stuff on this year podcast, so it's finally time. And... This is going to be one of several podcasts because there's so much content in this universe yeah. to delve into and so much detail that there's plenty of uh, plenty for us to talk about. Yeah, and I just want to say you're going to explain I think the nature of this sort of multi-part situation, but please do not fret if you're out there and you're one of our friends who's a Harry Potter fan. We plan to go back to this well many times. <laughs> And touch on many of the different pieces of this universe. Indeed. So, I was thinking, because Fantastic Beasts is coming out, wouldn't it be fun to do a Fantastic Beasts podcast? Then I started doing some research and realized that there's no way we could do just one. So, here's how this is going to be broken out. It's going to be a three-part podcast. It won't all be consecutive. We'll we'll spread it out a little bit. But the way we I've decided to group them is group one, which we'll be doing today is any Fantastic Beast that is originally created by J.K. Rowling. So an invention of her mind that appears in the Harry Potter novels at some point, one through seven. Yeah. So those are those are sort of the two main criteria. We're picking out different spots on that quadrant, or different spots in that sort of grid. This is our one quadrant we're working in right now. That's a math thing, Kyle. I wouldn't expect you to understand Mm. it. So what we're doing is the quadrant Uh. where she created it, and it appears in Harry Potter 1 to 7. Okay. So not, she didn't create it in 1 to 7, not she didn't create it in wider Potter canon, and not she created it in wider Potter canon. Do you hear what I'm saying? I hear you. I don't understand it. I'm just going to hope our listeners can keep up. Okay. The second podcast will be JKR original beasts that appear in the wider Potter canon, such as the different pan- quadrant. Different, okay. If you say so. So that would include, <laughs> so that would include the Fantastic Beast movies. That would include Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, the supplemental material, which I really enjoyed reading in preparation for this. If you haven't read it, yeah. I, I highly recommend it. Though you'll be getting a good summary in that second podcast. The third podcast is a little interesting. I, I, if, I if I'm catching on, I believe this is another quadrant still. This- yes, yet another quadrant. We're going to skip one. There's one quadrant we'll be skipping. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is a trident, I believe. This last podcast will be magical beings and beasts that appear in the Harry Potter novels, but that are not original JKR creations. So beasts that have some kind of origin in mythology that have been incorporated into the Harry Potter universe in some way. Yes. Probably extremely cleverly and with some of her own subtlety added because she's a fucking genius. Yeah. She's number one. And that has that has become so painfully obvious in listening back through this series on the audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Also in continuing to dive deeper into the Cormoran Strike series. She's a genius. She's an absolute genius. It's just... It has always irked me that people get on their snooty high horses and talk about, well, she's not really a great writer. I always knew they were wrong, but the proof has become more abundant as I've gotten older, and especially now that I'm listening back through these again. She's a genius. Absolutely. And it's kind of obvious when you read them in sequence, like that increase in quality as each book goes. And it's not like what's so brilliant about it is it's not like she was becoming like a better writer noticeably each book. It's just that she was changing her writing style as she went to kind of reflect the change in the characters that she was writing. Totally. Like imagine Roald Dahl also wrote, wrote the movie heat (laughs) and wrote Lord of the Rings. 
<laughs> like she wrote a children's book. She wrote the best thriller you could imagine in Goblet of Fire. She wrote Coming of Age. She's like Judy Bloom. Like it's just, I, it is incredible the range of her talents and the way she harnessed the full range of those talents in this one world. And to bring it back to our topic, it's remarkable how well she integrates all these various fantastic beasts into a world that feels grounded and ultimately about a lonely boy looking for fellowship and friendship like that. It simultaneously feels as though they fully belong in this world. And as I will argue, as we discuss point to the most important qualities that we want to be paying attention to, but they also feel like they're part of this wider sort of broader expanded universe that need only be hinted at and then eventually made into a trillion part movie series. <laughs> but like it sort of works on both of those levels. They really work on screen or off screen. Oh, absolutely. I, it's exactly what you said. They're the perfect way to create this world that feels at the same time completely foreign to us and also completely lived in. Yeah. It's pretty remarkable. But with that, do you want to, do you want to hop in? Yeah, I do. Really quickly, this is from the Fantastic Beasts book. It's a little prologue that I just really, it just, I love her and like the attention to detail she puts into everything that she does. So how are we defining beasts? We're defining them the same way that Newt Scamander does in this book. So it's actually kind of an interesting bit of wizarding history that she details because the wizarding world had the same issue. Like, what do we define as a beast? So the first criteria they used was anything on two legs will consider a beast, which obviously has some problems or will anything on two legs will consider intelligent, not a beast. Anything on more than two legs or less, I guess, will consider a beast. And obviously there are some problems there. For example, centaurs have four legs, but are near or greater than human intelligence. Trolls have two legs, but obviously you wouldn't want to trust them with you know, anything. Your so, bathroom, certainly. Yep. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> or the, the dungeons! Fuck you want to know! So they realized they'd made a mistake, but what's interesting is that the, and then so the second time they had a council to figure this out, they decided anyone that shows up to this council after being invited is smart enough to kind of look after their own affairs and then they can be considered not a beast. And anyone who doesn't show up is a beast. She's amazing. That's a great idea. It's brilliant. And so that's what the one they ended up sticking with. What's interesting is that centaurs were so insulted by not being included the first time that they deign to show up and are therefore classified as beasts. And there's actually a centaur liaison office at the Magic uh, the Ministry of Magic, but it's like a running joke amongst ministry officials that if you've been sent to the Centaur Liaison Office, you're getting the sack, which I just think is so, like so brilliant. Like this is a this is like a throwaway sentence and a supplementary book, and she's and it's like that's all you need to say about her to know what kind of writer she is. I also just as a side note, I, this pause is gonna be longer than we want it to be, yeah. but I think it's worth noting she. Her writing exemplifies this incredible quality in great writers, which is to take a side in an issue or to take a side in a story, whatever it might be, but to definitively take a side, which she certainly does throughout these stories, but make it so, make her point so brilliantly and defend that side so brilliantly that people on both sides of that argument fully think that she's arguing for them and sort of the politics that she puts forth in things like the ridiculousness of this centaur liaison office could equally have somebody think it's so ridiculous that no energy is committed to working with the centaurs or somebody thinking, oh, government excess in having a centaur liaison office. Like, it's amazing. But she's she's taking a side in this thing. But whatever you believe, like even on something as small as that, you can see where she's coming from and you can believe she's talking to you. She's a hero. Damn straight. So that's how we'll define it because that's how she defines yeah. it. So some things will be excluded from that. No plants, so no devil snare, no mimbleless mimbletonia, mm -hmm. no mandrakes. Yep. Also, there's a separate division for uh, spirits, so we won't be talking about ghosts or poltergeists. Mm -hmm. But other than that, we're ready to go. So I'll jump right uh, into it. There is one group I want to ask about, but I... They're, 
they would figure high on my list. Are what about uh, adorable creatures with big bat-like ears? I'm glad you brought that up because I think we're gonna have a discussion about this. Okay, cool. So number ten. Number ten is the Krupp, which mm. I think first appears in Goblet of Fire during a Care of Magical Creatures class with Hagrid. I believe they. I believe they do. Krupps are basically Jack Russell Terriers. <laughs> the only difference is that they have forked tails. <laughs> I, that is J.K. in. <laughs> A nutshell. It's so classic, JK. Like, that's so stupid. Why is that a magical creature? <laughs> it's just awesome because it's so funny and it's, and it's whimsical. And this world is supposed to be funny and whimsical, even when crazy shit is happening. We've discussed how it's one of the, the true brilliances of these novels is that even in the darkest times, these books have a Larry Light, ultimately goofy kind of, like magic is such like a goofy, like, like Dumbled the like Dumbledore's speech, like the Oddment and Tweak, like it's just eclectic yeah. and goofy and at its core it's very silly. And so like this is just a perfect example of that. And then it's in the book it talks about how wizards, if they put any kind of like concealment charm on the tail, can carry them around with them even in, in Muggle society, which I think is cool. If I remember correctly, this is one of the creatures that Hagrid shows them after he kind of needs to lay low when he's in danger of being sacked. <laughs> yeah, I think that this is sort of part of the group of the flobber worm. Let's just, let's just, there's a little bit of heat on me right now. Let's just take it easy. So, number 10 is the Krupp. Mm -hmm. Number 9 is a Porlock. Are you mm -hmm. familiar with the Porlock? Yeah, talk to the listeners. The por <laughs> the porlock also appears in the care of magical creatures class. A porlock is what's kind of described as like a horse guardian. So they live on farms and will protect horses from predators or thieves or whatever. And they live in like stacks of hay. They're little like two legged kind of humanoid creatures, I believe. And they are instructed. I believe a part of their Care of Magical Creatures OWL includes caring for a Porlock or being able to find a Porlock in a barn or, you know, like something like that. Yeah, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, that was part of their Care of Magical Creatures exam. And I remember, I think that the Porlocks may have appeared in one of the video games, mm. which, were ter which were terrible. And my recollection is that they were rendered something like the uh, Ewoks. Mm. They're just like these weird little hairy things that are kind of, it's not really clear what they're doing there. I could probably take down an ATAT -AT though, just by throwing shit at it. Unquestionably. But what is it that you love about the Porlock? Um, I don't know if I have a particular attachment to the Porlock. I just think like this sense of a creature that is kind of like, kind of like the, I, I feel like you might find a Porlock at the burrow. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of a rustic mm. kind of creature I feel like I'm missing something no oh, no okay. I'm not there was not, I wasn't leading you anywhere I'm just I was curious what your thoughts were I think that um I think you're right I think there's something sort of bucolic about them they're very British they just like hang out with the horses and just chill and I do think that it's I think as I think about this creature which I certainly did not coming into this I think the nice thing about them is they're a reminder that not all magic is crazy and dramatic and scary like mm. I don't know. They're just hanging out with the horses, doing nothing. Yeah, it's a good point. They feel very, um, like domestic, you know? Yeah. It's like having a rooster kind of like on your property that you, you see every day and just kind of minding his own business. It's, it feels like it would fit in nicely. Like there's a, there's a porlock in the woods watching the gnomes getting flicked out into the woods as the Weasleys denome their garden. I really like this now. I thought the porlock was a dumb pick when you put it there, but now I'm super into this because I'm picturing it at the burrow. I want a porlock. I kind of want to hang out with a porlock because I think like, I think a porlock's there while I'm shucking some corn. Like Molly Weasley's about to make a really nice steak and kidney pie and I'm just shucking corn and there's a porlock just like looking at me and cooing at the horses. And like chewing on a piece of straw. Oh. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm into this. Yeah. I'm into this now. Sign me up for a porlock, though I have no horses to protect. <laughs> no. I, I cannot offer the porlock anything but my friendship. No, I wonder if if there are cat porlocks, then I'm into this. <laughs> Well, teaser for a little bit later. But until Ooh, then, yeah. number eight is the Puffskeen, which mm -hmm. 
we're most familiar with the pygmy puff skein variety, otherwise known as pygmy puffs, which are sold out of Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. The most famous pygmy puff that we know, of course, is Geneva Weasley's pygmy Arnold. <laughs> I love this because, to me, the pygmy puff always reminds me of the conversation about the tattoos and how there's rumors of various tattoos that Harry might have. And then Ginny, I think Ginny says that she's been spreading the rumor that Ron has a pygmy puff tattoo, right? Yes. Whereas, just, whereas Harry has a hippogriff across his chest. Yeah, that's what it was, a hippogriff. And it's just, ugh. It's classic Jenny. The Pygmy Puff is, is another of the creatures that it's just so effing random. It's, it's just cute. It's like, it's like the wizarding equivalent of a hamster, I think. Like a little, yeah, not, maybe not quite because they're like pocketable, but like a, a little pet that are cute and like it feels like every like little girl had one at some point. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's certainly more manageable than a toad. Sorry, Neville. Yes unquestionably more manageable than a toad but then again given the reputation of some of these creatures who's to say like as mm. you recall the carnish pixies did quite a bit of damage to stupid lockhart's office you never know that's a really good point do you remember i'm sure you don't there's an episode of jimmy neutron called attack of the twonkies <laughs> and they're these like adorable little like no. oh oh that episode attack of the twonkies you remember yeah they're like yes they're, they're basically like Furbies, like they have really big, cute eyes, but they're—I can't remember what it is, but something sets them off, and all of a sudden they're crazy and have sharp teeth, like the Goonies. Uh, mm-hmm. And I could like see the Puffskeens doing this, like upon the introduction of like some kind of weird, like wizard food or like with yeah, the- somebody feeds them after midnight. Yeah, exactly. And then probably also- Neville. Neville's probably in the herbology lab, like hanging out with Arnold. And just gives him a little bit of gillyweed, like just lets him nibble a bit, and then suddenly you have that's how the giant squid was born. Like you have this gigantic aquatic pygmy puff. I can see that. Or Neville being yeah. like slow like immediately he has like one on his finger and he's like trying to shake it off, and then all of a sudden there are like three <laughs> more on his chest and he's like, No, get off me. It's like that scene in the Incredibles with the balls. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's how this could have gone, but they don't, and we've gone Definitely. far enough off track. Probably. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Number seven is the Kniesel, which mm-hmm. is basically a like a, a magical version of a house cat that's very yeah. useful for detecting unsavory type folks. Mm-hmm. They're also notably more intelligent than cats, even though cats are known to be pretty intelligent in the first place. A notable half Kniesel I found on the internet today is Crookshanks, which is why Crookshanks displays such advanced intelligence. Yeah, I think people forget because there was so much going on at the latter stages of Prisoner of Azkaban that Crookshanks becomes best friends with Sirius Black the dog and like, really contributes a lot to his plan. <laughs> like, isn't just a bit player. Actually tries to bring him Peter Pettigrew. Yep. And learns to communicate with him. Crookshanks. She pushes yes. the, the knot yeah. on the Whomping Willow to let them in. Exactly. So Crookshanks is not just there for a little bit of entertainment. Though she is... Or Crookshanks is... I don't even... Crookshanks is a he, right? Oh, I don't know. I think Crookshanks is a he. Crookshanks is highly entertaining in his, her constant battles with scabbers, but also a really like important piece of that novel. And, uh, yeah, it's great. I think that she would have, or he would have worked fairly well as a house cat, but is way more fun when you find out that he's actually half an easel. Agreed. I, I really love the moment at probably halfway through Order of the Phoenix when at number 12 Grimwald place, she just, he, he, she just curls up on Sirius's lap. Like they're still good friends. <sighs> and it's not clear what happens to Crookshanks later in the series. I like to think that she's off living with like the confunded Grangers somewhere or at Hogwarts still. I don't, I don't know if it ever gets laid out for us. That's a good point. Cause I don't think Crookie came on their very extended camping trip. Certainly not. 
But the nice thing about a Neasel, somewhat like a Krupp, is that presumably would blend in fairly well in the Muggle world. That's true. Uh, I would think maybe that maybe he went packing with the Grangers on their their little adventure down under. I hope so. I hope so. I hope so, because I think Crookshanks would be fine on his own, but I, I hope he had friends. Agreed. So that brings us to our not top three. All these creatures are such a delay. I just picked three that I don't know. <laughs> I'll just I'll get into it. One is the flower worm, <laughs> as you mentioned. But the fl- see the tough thing about the flower worm is the flower worm. <laughs> all of these creatures we evaluate on two fronts. One is like their general creatureness. Are they a cool creature, absent any plot developments? And then two, how do they reflect on the larger plot? As horrifyingly dumb and boring as flobberworms are, they're such a great representation of Hagrid's journey to become a better teacher. That's true. And, like, the flobberworm is so emblematic of Hagrid's demeanor <laughs> at the time. Just down yeah. and just dead <laughs> to the world and bleh. Just wants to go back to having some exciting creatures. And, but, but... Importantly, he does. He brings the flower worms out. He does it. Ugh, terrible. Another t- number two is the doxy, which mm. is basically like a like a six legged pixie type creature that you probably remember from Order of the Phoenix when they infest yeah. a, a lot of the rooms in number twelve. Yeah, the- underrated, underrated passage, the kind of section of basically all of Harry Potter, but especially you know looking at Order of the Phoenix, the cleaning of Grimald Place is absolutely fantastic it's really fun and it's actually really good world building obviously there's there's the big reveal that gets dropped and you don't realize it at the time but it's really cool because it it gives you a little peek behind the curtain at you know what happens when really important shit isn't happening when wizards gather like you gotta clean stuff and this is how they do it and the doxy droppings were a big part of that i'm i know that they laid eggs i think there too like there's a lot going on with these damn doxies yeah, they're a real pain in the arse. Yeah. The last one is <laughs> the crossbreeding of a fire crab and a manticore. Who in God's name would do this? How dare you? These make an appearance high on my list of pluses. They probably belong on the other list. The the, the last one here that'll get moved over is the blast and the scroot. <laughs> one of the greatest. This is... JKR at her finest. At her finest. I just, it's so funny. Like, these big, <laughs> terrifying creatures that at the same time explode out of their assholes. Like, it's incredible. <laughs> and shoot, great distances because of the fire jetting out of their assholes. <laughs> yes. And their assholes, which importantly are completely indistinguishable from their Biting, stinging mouths. If I recall correctly, so they're illegal. It's it's important to note they're illegal. <laughs> Hagrid is not capable of identifying their genders, but thinks that <laughs> the ones with the suckers are females. They sting, they bite, they shoot flames out of their ass. <laughs> <laughs> they're tough to look at. Like, there's no redeeming qualities to these things. And a very, very large iteration of the blast-ended screw ends yes. up having a large role at the end of the third task in Goblet of Fire. The book version. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> they did. They ran out of budget before the movie version. If I remember correctly, Hagrid at one point assigns them to loop a rope around their midsection and walk them like a dog, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's such a great image. Just like my, my real-world image is of a giant, like, millipede horseshoe crab just walking around with some <laughs> dumb ass on the beach with a string tied around it. It's so great. It it's it so perfectly characterizes Hagrid and his love of all creatures, even if they are blast-ended screw. Incredible. I think what I really want to know is did he invent the name? Yeah. But he he probably did, right? I can't imagine that anyone ever had managed to mate a manticore or was it a chimera no it's a manticore a manticore and a fire crab which which a fire crab by the way is basically a large like less dangerous version of the blast ended screw they basically look like big turtles 
they're slow and can emit flames from their posteriors, but they're not nearly as dangerous and don't have stingers or pincer like their screwed brethren. I you're, love it. No, you're right. We'll have to move that one over to the actual list. All right, number six. Number six, I think, has now like kind of a, a greater imprint on people's minds because of the first Fantastic Beast movie. But also mm. important in the books is the bow truckle. Yeah. The bow truckle, first of all, they sound pretty darned adorable. If you're not yeah. careful, they'll slash you with their little claws. But I think a really cool part of the lore is that they tend to live in wand trees. I just think that's a really neat yeah. little touch. Unfortunately, they are introduced into the story as basically kind of a way of illustrating the competence of Professor Grubblyplank in comparison to Hagrid when he's gone at the beginning yes. of Order of the Phoenix. Because in the lesson, they're instructed on, like, the proper diet for a bow truckle. They have to draw, like, a, a picture of it and submit it as homework. Like, it's a really exemplary class. And Harry and Ron and Hermione are kind of begrudgingly forced to admit that it was the first really good class they'd had in a long time in that subject. But but the bow, truckles, bow truckle is great, and Newt Scamander has a personal bow truckle companion that's a real pleasure in the movies. Uh, do you mean Groot's commander? Because ah. <laughs> the bow truckle is a lot like Groot. But what I think is really cool about the bow truckle generally is that it in, it kind of reinforces the idea of atmospheric magic, which I think one of the coolest bits of magic in the entire series is the cave where the uh, locket is hidden when Dumbledore just says this place has known magic. And I think what's interesting is if you read that one way, it's like this place has known magic, yeah. which would mean like magic that is known the way I interpret it. And I think the way it's intended to be interpreted is this place has experienced magic. It has known magic. Like there's just magic here. And I think that the bow truckle is so cool for that because they are where magic is. They find a wand tree and they stay near it because it's there's magic. And I, I like to believe that they're imbibing some of the atmospheric magic. They're drawn to it. They can smell it. They can feel it. And I, I just think that's so cool. And I think it, it also really gets to the heart of some of what she talks about with like these magical communities that wizards and witches seek themselves out, seek each other out because they've been pushed to sort of the fringes of society and even the creatures have too. And it's cool that they congregate in the wand trees. I, I, that to me is forever and always the coolest thing about the boat truckle. That sense that you're describing, and I've never thought about it quite in that way, but I think you're right. Whether or not you know it, that's part of the appeal of the boat truckle. It reminds me a lot of what I like about the mythology of Star Wars, like this, mm -hmm. this force that is in everything, all living things and is in everybody. And some people are more sensitive to it than others. It kind of functions the same way that magic does in these stories. It's a really neat way to think about something that passes through all living things. And some things like bow truckles kind of have a way to sense it, especially. And you're right. Absolutely. So bow truckles are number six. A lot of midi-chlorines in those boat truckles. That's for damn sure. Number five. So this one is tough because this particular iteration is JKR's invention, but it's, you'll see what I mean. Number five is the acromantula. Yeah. Spiders exist and mm -hmm. certainly it's no stretch to think of a giant spider, but I think some of the mythology surrounding the acromantula is really unique to this story and so cool because Garagog can talk. And if you read about them in the books, they only live in like the deepest, darkest jungles of like South America. And I just like think that idea of like this creature, this giant dark creature that's just hidden from the rest of the world in this deep, dark, like forsaken place is such a, a chilling image and it reminds me of like um kind of like Godzilla you know like how he's he's in the earth and just like deep in there far away from prying eyes and I I just think it's really cool like this um I don't know the mythology surrounding like a dark hidden creature like that is really neat and I think and separates it enough from its real world counterpart that it counts I agree I think the acromantula is separate and as our good friend 
Sluggy, the Horace Slughorn points out, Acromantula Venom is quite valuable. Um, but I think, I think what I like about the Acromantula, at least the Acromantula that we know, Aragog, is that it's a communal creature, which I think separates it from your typical sort of mythological spider, particularly the giant spider. I think the one that comes to mind most obviously is Shelob yeah. from Lord of the Rings. But I think that the image of a spider as a solitary creature, while I'm certainly no expert, I think it is probably accurate in some cases. I think in other cases, it would not be as accurate. I think it feels strange to see Aragog's entire family live with him in the woods. But I think it introduces something kind of cool about this particular group. I think the fact that it communicates through speech is really neat, but I think it's especially neat to think of this community of spiders living in the woods because it's just, it asks so many questions that are really hard to answer. There are so many of them and they're so huge. Consider the diet that they have to have. They must be consuming so much meat. Unicorns. Yeah. And the fact that they're doing it all in secret, to me, it doesn't, and it's probably just because I trust her so completely. It doesn't feel like JK missing something or just kind of dropping something in casually and forgetting it. I think that the idea is that they really are hunting throughout those woods. It's just totally unseen. It could be crazy ass creatures that we know nothing of, but it's just, they're living in their own world. Well, I think that's part of the mystique of the forbidden forest and why it's so terrifying is because in the back of your mind, even if you've never consciously thought about it, you know that there's enough in there to support a colony of giant spiders. Yeah. And you, and you believe it. You don't think it's crazy. You're like, yeah, okay. They're just doing their thing in there. How they're doing it. We don't know. I just, I just love the concept that like this, this creature that typically only lives in the deepest, darkest places of these jungles can adapt. And like a part of that is now in this forest that's a couple hundred feet away from this school. Like, yeah. It's, it's to imagine them coexisting in the same forest as like an entire herd of centaurs or for a time, a ha- like a giant. I, it's like, it feels like a trope, like this big, dark, like it's literally called a forbidden forest. And yet it still has that distinct JKR charm on it. And the Acromantula is a big part of that. Totally. And as, and as with all of these creatures, a big part of its existence is about overturning the stereotypes that we have of them. We think of a spider as a solitary creature. Nope, it lives with this group. We think of them as pure killing machines. Nope, this creature, while it does say that, you know, he can't deny its people meat that walks so willingly into its midst or whatever the line is, they don't immediately kill Harry and Ron. They talk to them and they try to explain why they're there. They try to explain the story of Hagrid and they're offended at the idea. Aragog specifically is offended at the idea that Hagrid would be accused wrongly of having opened the chamber of secrets. This Acromantula has a sense of some sort of right and wrong. It's not just about killing. And I think through this experience helps rearrange our understanding of this creature where it is very misunderstood like Hagrid it's wrongly cast out like Hagrid. And it makes you question, what is it that we're assuming about this creature that might be unfair? Because we feel it so strongly about Hagrid that the way he's cast is unfair. And in a lot of ways, Aragog is Hagrid. And that's really cool. Uh, There's another creature on this list that I think exemplifies that in, in a very similar way. And I don't think even for a millisecond that that's a coincidence. No. Very intentionally outlining what you just talked about. It's brilliant. Number four. Really delightful little creature here. Number four is the Niffler. Yeah, I love the Niffler. (laughs) I love the Niffler. I think it's one of the most purely enjoyable accounts of one of their lessons. Like, I love hearing the accounts of their charms lessons because they're usually humorous, but... The, it's a really good lesson that Hagrid plans. He hides a bunch of gold around the grounds. They each grab a Niffler. It's so delightful to imagine Ron getting like a particularly enthusiastic Niffler and winning the prize given, you know, his family's relationship with gold. It's just like a really good day for Ron and a, and like a really joyous day for all of them. Just like having a really good time and a care of It's like, it's a lesson I would have really loved to have attended. And I always, 
really like that one. And also there's the additional a bit about the Nifflers in Order of the Phoenix when Lee Jordan repeatedly yeah. levitates one into Umbridge's office. That image is so perfect because so my only mental image of Lee Jordan is of the ridiculously adorable actor who portrays Lee Jordan in the first few films and is talking about like Gryffindor has the he's called the stitch like, he's got the stitch 150 points like he's Mr. Explainy McExplainer of Quidditch and is just like really cute and the image of him with pure joy in his face levitating a Niffler up into Umbridge's office it's just it's just amazing isn't that just a great prank too though? Like it's all yes, it's a hilarious prank and it's in perfectly in keeping with sort of the Weasley Jordan joke like limits. It's ridiculously clever. It's destructive but not harmful and certainly not mean-spirited. It's just like it's exactly where you want to be in the prank the prank matrix. I love those three. I wish we got a little bit more Lee Jordan. I assume he's probably involved with Weasley's Wizard Weezes in some capacity. I I would think so. Product development or something. So, yeah, I love the Niffler. So, and I think the Niffler is in the Fantastic Beast movie, too. I think he's that little goober that's running around. Yeah. I think that, I think, not to be too cynical, but I think somebody realized they could sell some toys. I think you're probably right. We have a very lengthy list of honorable mentions here. Unfortunately, we're going to have to go through them a little quicker than probably some of them deserve. So we'll get started. Num, er, they're not really numbered, but the first one I have on here is the Gnarl, which Muggles oftentimes confuse for hedgehogs. They're kind of like Krups. I think there's a Care of Magical Creatures lesson on them at some point. Because, or, I think actually it's pretty funny. Hermione asks Hagrid after his first interview with Umbridge why he can't just teach them about Gnarls. He's like, fuck that, man. Gnarls are boring yeah. as shit. <laughs> that is absolutely his reaction. Yeah, I had fire crabs on here. We kind of talked about them already. One that I forgot was mentioned in the book is the Arumpert. Yep. Yeah, so the Arumpert is basically like a elephant or slash rhinoceros type creature mm-hmm. whose horn is extremely explosive. And explodes. Yeah, so if you remember in Deathly Hallows when Harry and Co. need to escape the Lovegood's home, I think one of them hits it with a stunning spell and it erupts. But if you recall, and this is another creature that you may be mentioning at some point, but the Lovegoods maintain that it is not the horn of an erumpid, but rather the horn of, shall I say it? Yeah, you're going to put ahead. honorable mentions of the Crumplehorn Snorkak. That's right. <laughs> Which is just so delightful because it, I don't believe that the Crumplehorn Snorkak had been mentioned in about a book and a half. And to bring it back in a scenario where it matters. Just amazing. Like, what, a, what an amazing move to not only bring the Crumplehorn Snorkak back, but to bring it back in a, with stakes. It's really masterful writing. And while we're on the subject, she also manages, I was just listening to this part of the book today, to bring up another one of our honorable mentions, the Raxpert, <laughs> when mm-hmm. Luna oh, is like Raxpert. distractedly waving around her head at the wedding. Harry yep. disguised as Cousin Barney or whatever. He goes, oh, it's probably yep. a Raxpert. And Crumb is like, what the oh, fuck? That's like the most Big Lebowski moment of it all. It's just like when the Big Lebowski parrots things he's heard before. When he's like, this aggression will not stand, man. <laughs> and instead of that, Harry starts spouting Luna's gonzo bullshit. And it's just, oh, it's fantastic. I love, I love Luna. And I love these yeah. silly animals. Or what's the other, the, uh, the pyro, they're like fire demons that just like traverse the land and don't actually exist. Yeah. I I can't remember what they're called. I like her with the freshwater plimpies. They were next on my list. Luna's Ah, freshwater plimpy recipe. (laughs) As mentioned by our good friend Xenophilius. I'm pretty sure the freshwater plimpies are down by the dirigible plum. Which is just, I know it doesn't count because it's a plant, but I love dirigible plums. I love it. You're flexing pretty hard with the dirigible plum reference. That's good. Uh, I just love, I love a good dirigible and I love a good dirigible plum. Oh, who doesn't? 
I feel like they'd fit well in Batman the Animated Series, just saying. <laughs> also from that same, that very same chapter, Xenophilius references Billywigs, which are, yes. which are basically these little like Australian bugs that when you get bitten by them, you feel like a sense of elation and then actually start to float a little bit, which is mm-hmm. kind of silly. And he references using like their wings to decorate like a headpiece or something. He's such a goof. I think that that may even have been somewhat in reference to the diadem. Yeah, I think you're right. So that's a billywig. Mm-hmm. Let's see, I've got still more here. Oh, I love this one. And also it's kind of sad. But the golden snidget, which yeah. which is the tiny little hummingbird-esque golden bird that people used to catch while playing Quidditch before the invention of the golden snitch. Um, which obviously inspires the, the name of the ultimate ball that they use, but I think probably as early on as Sorcerer's Stone, this one gets referenced, I think. So that was what I was trying to remember whether it had actually been referenced in the book, so I wasn't sure if this was a legal play. I'm, I'm pretty sure it, it was. Okay. But I love the Golden Snidget because I think it's it just captures a lot of things that I really love about JK, one of which is the way she reaches into sort of her local mythology and, you know, Welsh, Scottish, Celtic mythology, mm-hmm. Old English, as well as like Norse mythology and then going into Latin, yada, yada, yada. I love the way she sources her references. What's really cool about this is the way she takes sort of a fake old reference and turns it into something modern in her own world. It's pretty nuts that she has the balls to like make up the fake source of something from within her own world. Right. It's just, it shows the level of planning that she put into these things. And I love it. We're going to get into this more in detail in the third iteration of this pod, but her knowledge of mythology and folklore is really stunning. Like, she knows her stuff. She's also a... I don't know what languages she does or doesn't speak, but she has most certainly studied other languages. Her use of Middle English and Anglo-Saxon terms in her writing is pretty spot on. My God. So, next one. I don't remember this one being referenced, but during my research today apparently it was referenced in deathly hallows so it's the creature is called a demiguise and there's one that appears in the fantastic beast movie they're pretty cool they're hard to catch because they can turn invisible at will and are actually like precognizant for a few seconds in the future so the only way to catch them is to behave erratically and unpredictably which i think is a really cool touch but what's important for our story is that their hairs are used in the manufacturing of invisibility cloaks. Yeah, they're they're really cool. So I'm looking now, they're mentioned in Deathly Hallows. So I think if I'm remembering correctly, the context in which they're mentioned is when they're talking about the difference between a true invisibility cloak and mm. sort of an imitation invisibility cloak. The Demiguise is so freaking cool. It's a very odd portrayal in the film as i recall it looks kind of like a monkey yeah i'm super into it i really like the idea i what i really like is the further expansion of this really neat magical universe i especially like that the magical system in place allows for creativity because in a world where the half-blood prince can be inventing spells there are many different ways to create an invisibility cloak. And it's neat that one of them is one of these sort of imitating the natural world methods where you use a naturally invisible creature to make your invisibility cloak. I really like that about the demo guys. Big fan. Big fan of the demo guys. I've got a couple more that are like, we know of them because of a prod, like a something like an invisibility cloak that stems from a, a creature. One of those mm-hmm. is a Mertlap, which are these weird, like, rodent-type things. But yeah. you'll remember that in Order of the Phoenix, when Harry needs to soothe the scars on the back of his hand after detention with Dolores, 
he puts his hand in a bowl of Mertlap essence. So there's that. This one I really like. It's a lizard called a Moke. And when they are threatened, they shrink in size, which means that their skin is ideal for keeping valuables safe. And you'll remember that for Harry's 17th birthday in Deathly Hallows, Hagrid gives him a Moke skin pouch where he keeps things like the shard of the mirror from Sirius. I think he eventually ends up putting a couple of other valuables in there, but it's a really neat like application of like a a property of a, a magical creature. Like I think that's really cool. Agreed. Only two more. One is really a stretch. The this this one is um the Nogtail, which I think is only very briefly mentioned when Slughorn is talking to McLagan about his uncle at the ministry and McLagan tells him that Oh, they went hunting Nogtails. They went hunting Nogtails, which are basically like like wild pigs, I guess. And then the last one, which is a really, really a deep one. They're called quintipeds. They're like these five footed dangerous creatures. And the only people think that they're referenced in the book because when Harry goes into the room of requirement to ditch the prince's book after he does the Sectum Semper spell and he finds the room with all the stuff hidden in it, where eventually he mm-hmm. finds the diadem, it says that on his way to the cabinet where he stuffs the book, he passes a cage that had a five-legged creature's skeleton in it, which people think was a quintiped. Oh. Yeah. I remember the the skeleton, but I didn't remember. Wow, that's really cool. It's right before he happens to pass by a certain bust that has a certain uh, tiara. Very ugly it. man wearing a tiara. So that's probably nothing. So that's the end. Just of- keep going. Yeah, that's the end of my honorable mentions list. Beautiful. Moving on to number 30. This is arguably, I think probably without argument, actually, the foulest creature in the Harry Potter universe, but I think is a real triumph of JKR's creative ability because she managed to create a creature that, though none of us has ever seen or encountered, we know the signs of it, we understand the fear that it induces, and it's bone-chillingly terrifying whenever they're on the page. Of course, I'm talking about Dementors. So we will, I think, if if I suspect correctly, we will touch on the other side of this question. But the Dementor is a creature that seems horrifying and is horrifying and is especially horrifying to those who make themselves vulnerable by loving and by having things that they cherish. A Dementor really isn't all that horrifying to somebody like Voldemort because what the hell does he care? He's just his worst memory. Sure, he probably has some worst memories where he thought he wasn't going to rise to power, but he doesn't have the depths to sink to that somebody like Harry has. And that obviously is a big part of his conversation with Lupin, where he says, you know, you've been through things that your classmates can't understand. But I think the Dementor ultimately is is wonderful because it reveals so much about the different characters, uh, especially about Harry. But what is neat is that it's not just a plot device. It works very nicely as a plot device, and it works really nicely as one side of a two-sided coin. But it also holds up as a creature. The creature itself is terrifying and unique and different, and the way that they're described as floating just begs more questions than it answers. Because while in the movies they fly, the books, there's really never any clarification about whether they fly or walk or really what they are. Like, the movie had to take a slightly more concrete stance because we were going to see them on screen. But the books basically just say, like, you nobody's ever seen under the hood except for somebody who's gotten a kiss. So who knows what's there? So they hold up as a creature, but they also work just perfectly in delivering one of the central messages of the stories. Absolutely. In reading or hearing a little about a little bit about their origin on Pottermore, it's kind of cool. They just like the Island where Azkaban is, is just where they happen to find an infestation of Dementors. And it's the only known place where they come from. It's like this one Island and that's where Dementors come from. And that's kind of like why I like that a lot there. It's terrifying. What is also, it's the same thing with the Acromantula and like how you assume that she thought about it. But like for creatures that are blind and deaf, 
Like, how is it that they're controlled by the ministry? And, like, it's not... Later in the books, we'll find that they're not. But for the years in the interim where they guard our prison... are Where they guard the prisons and, like, they are brought to guard the doors at Hogwarts and Hogsmeade, like, just, like, wonder what this interaction is like and who's tasked with this horrible... That's a really good point. Is it some sort of simple Pavlovian thing where they like put out a tray of souls and they go eat the souls and say, hmm, if I do the thing, I get more souls? Or is it some sort of Dumbledore speaks Mermish and also can communicate with Dementor situation? I don't know. And it, and it kind of begs the question, like, how intelligent is a Dementor? Like, is the fact that they like compulsively have to eat people's souls, like, kind of a werewolfian thing where they can't help it and they have to or like like how smart are they like the it's the it's another theme of this book where fear of darkness is you know or death is fear of the unknown and i think that's what's so terrifying about the dementor is they're cloaked you don't know what's under the hood you don't know what they're thinking or how they think how they communicate they're like black holes and yeah. uh, I remember being really terrified when I read Prisoner of Azkaban for the first time by these creatures and the way that in the movie they do it so well with the ice stretching across the window. And that noise that they kind of play on Ugh. the screen when they do it, it's its really good. The movie's nailed that. Yeah. Dementors are a, a triumph. They're iconic. So, number two, and I, I think they count, but... They're not listed in the Fantastic Beasts supplemental material, and I think probably because of the criteria that we discussed before, and that, like, we're talking about house elves here. I don't think a house elf would have gotten invited to a conference like that based on the standing that they have in the wizarding world, and so I think it's a technicality, but I also know that they have, obviously, wizard-like intelligence, so probably wouldn't qualify. I put them on here because I don't think they would fit well into either of the other podcasts that we're talking about. And I think they deserve to... It's weird to classify them as a beast. But they're also not strictly adaptations of an existing mythological creature, and so I put them on this list. I, yeah, whatever the, whatever Quinn will say about this, I think for our purposes, they needed to be discussed. They ought to be on here. This is the spot and they should be very high. I, house elves are an absolute triumph. SPEW is wonderful, (laughs) but Winky, Dobby, Creature, their, their enslavement is treated so thoughtfully and so uh, in such a layered fashion throughout the stories that I think as you listen, it's hard not to draw parallels with, you know, real world history in a lot of ways. And so that, that makes what JKR sort of undertook to do risky. That's a risky gambit to take such a sensitive real world topic and put it into these stories. And I think she pulled it off very nicely with respect to the real world parallels, but she certainly pulled it off incredibly well as far as the story goes. This system of magical enslavement is so cruel and so casual that it's just shocking when you go back. Like at first, I don't think it really strikes you because it's so casual, but as you go back, it's so cruel. The system that's imposed upon these house elves and Harry's naive misunderstanding of how this can be is just such a great encapsulation of what makes him so special and what makes him in a lot of ways, the avatar for the audience. Cause it just, it doesn't make sense that like somebody, somebody like Ron, he doesn't want a slave, but he's pretty fine with the concept of it. I think that's, I think that's why it's so clever that Hermione ends up being the champion for it because she comes like Harry does from a background where, this isn't the norm and it hasn't been kind of ingrained in you. It's just the standard for behavior. And so and from an outside perspective, it's just like unilaterally a wrong thing to do, but a character that we love a lot of characters in this universe that we love and consider generally to be really good people like Ron and Sirius, like treat house elves pretty poorly. And, And you're right. It, I think in, just like from a 
a storytelling perspective, like House Elves are some of the the greatest characters in this story. I think you could make a real case that, I mean, Dobby is one of the greatest characters in the entire series. He's a really yeah, good it, friend to Harry. And it's crazy. And Creature has an arc that is about as complicated and interesting as Snape's. Like, yeah. legitimately, it's Creature is Snape in miniature and is totally engrossing every second that he's involved. He's a tragic figure because you know exactly how the situation is going to end. And you know it's because of these centuries of enslavement. But in spite of the centuries of enslavement, you know that Sirius could have made a difference. It's just, they're so complicated. They're such a reminder of all of the things that are wrong in wizarding society. And yet on an individual level, they're often such sources of light and goodness. It's, it's awesome. I, one of my all time favorite house elf scenes of which there are many, but one of my favorites is when Dobby is proudly proclaiming to Harry that he gets paid now and says that Dumbledore told him and he's like, he like looks left and looks right and he's like, said I could call him a barmy old codger. <laughs> and it's just like one of the greatest moments in literary history. It makes me so happy because it speaks to exactly why we love Dumbledore. It speaks exactly to why we love Dobby and oh, why we love house elves. I specific, I obviously creatures arc is amazing. And I'm just now arriving yeah. to the part in Deathly Hallows where they've given him the locket and he's kind of flipped and it's really a pleasure to read. Starts making soup. Yeah. The treacle taunt that master is so partial to. But, <laughs> but Dobby is is such a delight every time he's he's written. It's, it's like that line and just the way that he so animately defends Harry from the slightest slight. The gillyweed thing and then in Deathly Hallows it's just fucking yeah. heartbreaking. But just he's Dobby's ugh. a hero. And Dobby shoots the lights out every time he's on screen the or on socks. the page. When uh, oh. I love it when Ron gives him a second pair of socks so that he can mix and match them, and Dobby says something like, "Dobby knew of Harry Potter's greatness, of course, but little did he know the greatness of even his friends." <laughs> and Ron is like, "Just gave you some socks, bro," but like loves it. <laughs> That's house elves. Yeah. Number one, I'm sure you know what we're we're going to talk about. Yeah. And I'm, I feel confident the listeners do too. It's amazing that this creature has such an impact that it does because we only really understand what it is in Order of the Phoenix and late at that. Yeah. But as she does so brilliantly, it's there from the, within the first five chapters of this series. Obviously, we're talking about the Thestral. And, and the Thestral is what we've been alluding to before as sort of another piece of this conversation about appearances and reality. It's, I've, like, it's pretty overt, but it doesn't come off as heavy-handed because, like, even in the wizarding world, they're considered to be to be bad luck, to be omens of death, and, like, these dark creatures. Like, everyone thinks of them this way, and yet when you understand what they are, they have incredible senses of direction, they're loyal, they're really, really fast, and... I think what's a really beautiful part of the whole appeal of them is that, like, J.K. talked about it on Pottermore, that it's not like you can see a Thestral immediately after you've witnessed someone die. It only occurs after you've had time to reflect on exactly what death means, and you've come to grips with it. And so the Thestral kind of represents this, like, beautiful acceptance of, I mean, I mean, Thestrals kind of represent death one for one. Like, death is this thing that we tend to think of as dark and scary and foreboding and the end-all, be-all of things, but with a different perspective on it, like we get from Dumbledore at the end of Deathly Hallows, it's really a natural part of life and something that, you know, with the right understanding can be something beautiful, just like a Thestral. And like I said, like, when you think about it in that way, it seems overt, but it's really, really subtly done. And from a practical perspective, it's just amazing to find out that the horseless carriages all this time have been being pulled by Thestrals. 100%. Very nicely said. Totally agreed on all counts. I think, as you kind of referenced there, it's so neat 
for JKR to talk about what you get from experiencing death. Like it, there's a lot of emphasis on what death takes from you, but it's important that we realize that nobody understands the stakes of this second wizarding war better than somebody like a Neville, somebody like a Harry who understands loss. And Luna, even when she comes onto the scene, she understands loss. And that means that they're much more equipped to deal with what needs to be done in the future. And Thestrals are such a great encapsulation of that. They need something. And the only way to understand what they need and to get what they need is to have experienced some terrible loss because it gives them something. It's really beautiful. And it's exactly the kind of creature you know that Voldemort would be afraid of. And that's... If there is a better endorsement of something being good than Voldemort being afraid of it, I don't know what it is. But you know he'd be afraid of it, and you know he'd shun it, even though it could offer him something very helpful. Oh, I love, I love the Thestrals, and I'm. It's cool. She does this so effectively, but it like I don't know any other piece of literature or TV or movie that like so effectively and satisfyingly answers most of the questions that it opens up for you. Like there are so many ways that like that could have been resolved in an unsatisfying manner. And this just, it feels like her whole world is a puzzle and every single piece was on the table face up all the time for you to see. And it just took a while for it to get formed. And it, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful writing. Anyways, that's our top 10 list for now. Did I miss any? What do you have? No, you got them all. That was, I think, I think as we discussed, the number of creatures who fall into precisely this quadrant that we were discussing is not as great as you might imagine. Yeah. And what's, what's so wonderful about our friend JK is that as usual, for some authors, that would be a sign of weakness that they were borrowing too much. In her case, it's a sign of her strength that she borrows from and redefines so many of these creatures. Yeah. I, like, I, that's just, she's just the best. And that's what I think is really cool. So uh, there's not a ton of other ones. Um, I think as far as any changes I would, I would ponder, the only thing I would want to do is I would like to add the blast ended scroot yeah. and add it at a relatively strong position. But other than that, I love it. I think that the top three for sure are totally locked in. Yeah. And, and just to go back to your point, I think, Probably listeners are thinking of two to three creatures that they're stunned aren't on this list. And yeah. I was stunned myself to find that actually are of mythological origin that JK has kind of made her own so effectively that we just assume that she made them up. So to you listeners, I say stay tuned. Yeah, don't fret. Don't fret. Yeah, this we're not... was a conversation that Kyle and I had this afternoon, Yeah, actually. Yes. So, yeah, I think we keep the top three. I would, if, and I think we sh- we obviously should. Let's put the blast ended screws at like four. Uh, that's exactly where the blast ended screwed ought to be. I would, I, tr- truthfully, I'd be happy. I think the play would be throw the blast ended screwed in at four, push everything down one, except for the poor, the poor log probably should go. Oh, but I love the Porlock. I know, but I, but, okay, if something's gonna drop off, what would you prefer, the Porlock or the Krupp? I would keep the Porlock because the Krupp <laughs> is so similar to- But it's so funny that it's just a Jack Russell. <laughs> Alright, let's keep, let's keep the Krupp. The Porlock is- It's such a baller ass move. The, the Porlock is like our, like our personal pick for this week, I think. Yeah, I think I so to me, like the the great thing about the Krupp is it's sort of like <laughs> LeBron James, like looking at you and saying, I'm about to dribble this through my legs <laughs> and you can't stop. Me. Yeah, the fact that we're like gushing over the Krupp right now is just proof yeah. that she owns us because yeah. if, if yep. in any other book, we're like, this is lazy. <laughs> yeah, this is lazy bullshit. You just put a forked tail on a freaking Jack Russell. There's You didn't do anything, but. She's proving to us and to herself how much she owns our asses. This is like us watching her make Kraft macaroni and cheese in a microwave and then like put it on a fancy plate and put a little sprig of parsley on it. And then we write like an incredible review of it on like a blog or something and say it's like not Kraft like K-R-A-F-T, but like Kraft mac and cheese. It's deconstructed. Yeah. Yeah. You're damn. That's a perfect analogy. That's exactly what it's like. Anyways, we're at an hour 10. 
we need to wrap this up, but I like really, really like that one, and I'm excited that we're going to be doing a lot more of this going forward. Yeah, I think uh, I think it kind of feels like we have got a list or something like that. Yeah, I think what I'll do now is I'll recite our top ten fantastic beasts that are JKR original beasts that appeared in books one through seven. <laughs> <laughs> Is that going to be the title of the episode? I think it'll probably just be Fantastic Beasts Part 1. And we'll let people listen and find out. I think if we're going to do that, we should probably name it Quadrant 1 of 3. So number 10. (laughs) Quadrant (laughs) 1 of (laughs) 3. Number 10 is the Krupp, a.k.a. Jack Russell Terry. (laughs) Number 9 is a Puff Skeen, or more specifically, the Pygmy Puff. Number eight is the Neasel. Number seven, a bow truckle. Number six, Acromantulas, follow the spiders. Number five, a Niffler. Number four, Blast Ended Scroots. <laughs> number three, the Dementors. Number two, House Elves. Number one, the Thestral. Kyle, that's a beautiful list. I this is I'm I'm in a place that's that's very happy. I'm wearing my I'm wearing my gym jams and talking about Harry Potter. No, it doesn't get much better than this. No. I'm looking forward to listening to some more Harry Potter. Maybe even this evening before I hit the yeah. old hay. I think that's a wonderful idea, my friend. Alright, guy, I'll see you next week if you're if you're still up for it. I am very keen to hit the second of some number of quadrants to be discussed. All right. Thanks, Math Mike. (laughs) See you, bud. Alrighty, friends. That was our top 10 for this week. But now we'd love to hear your top 10. So please check us out on all of our available social media outlets, traditional outlets, whatever outlets we have. Check us out on Twitter at Top10KM. That's all spelled out, Top10KM. Our email, Top10KM, spelled the same way, at gmail.com. Or our site, top10km.podbean.com. All forms of communication accepted, except for serial killer notes. Please don't send us any of those. If you like the pod, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never have to miss an episode of Top 10 ever again. If you didn't like it, please tell us why. We'll try to make the show better. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod, and our artwork was created by Erin Sant. You can check out her stuff at Sant Design on Instagram. Alrighty, goons. We'll see you next week.